Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Our guest is Dr. Rebecca Johnson, a pediatric oncologist hematologist at Mary Bridge Children's Hospital in Tacoma, Washington. She specializes in treating childhood blood disorders and cancer in kids, teens, and young adults. While at Seattle Children's Hospital, she founded the Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Program and is now building a similar program at Marybridge. Dr. Johnson was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 27 years old. This personal experience helped shape her research interests, which include patient engagement, cancer epidemiology, and unmet needs and barriers to care among adolescents and young adults. Earlier this year, Dr. Johnson and colleagues wrote a clinical review of breast cancer in adolescent and young adult women that was published in the Journal of Oncology Practice. She joins us today to talk about the distinct challenges faced by young women aged 15 to 39 who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. In the paper that you published, you said that the number of young women diagnosed with breast cancer has gone up since 2004. Do we know the size of this increase as well as the reasons why the number's going up? The size of the increase, uh, yes. So currently over 12,000 young women under the age of 40 um, were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2020. And uh, that's gone up from you know, 11,000 or less um, in the last decade. And so, you know, it's almost a 10% increase and and continuing to rise, unfortunately. And many other Western countries have also documented an increase in uh, the number of young women getting breast cancer. Uh, for example, France uh, reported this a, a few years even before the United States. And so this is not just something happening in America, but Uh, likely something happening in in Europe and possibly worldwide. And as for the the reasons for this increase, it's really kind of interesting because it's a very rapid increase in a short time. And there is, you know, a strong tendency to think, uh, oh, could it be a genetic factor? And, um, you know, maybe it's the, the genes of young women that are doing this. But the rapid rise in breast cancer and the particularly concerning rise in metastatic breast cancer at the time of diagnosis, so breast cancer that has already spread to distant organs when women are diagnosed, that is a huge problem. And in fact, the number of women under the age of 40 who are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer when they're diagnosed has tripled since the 1970s. And that number has just steadily gone up and in fact, exponentially increased. And so there's more breast cancer overall, and there is uh, quite a bit more metastatic breast cancer at at diagnosis um, than there used to be in young women. And so that change, you know, in 10 years and 30 years uh, is way too fast for any kind of a genetic change in the population, which leaves two possibilities. First of all, is there a change in some sort of a lifestyle modifiable risk factor? The big thing that's changed in America since the 1970s is the obesity epidemic. However, obesity itself is not a risk factor for breast cancer in young women per se, as it is in older women. And so there may be subtle influences of obesity on breast cancer risk in young women, like maybe it is um, impartially or all uh, accounting for the increase in metastatic disease. Nobody knows. So lifestyle factors such as caloric intake, alcohol intake, smoking, exercise, all of those things affect breast cancer risk. And all of them could have potentially changed in our population and therefore changed the incidence of breast cancer in recent years. Another thing is that the chemicals that we're exposed to in the environment are changing over time. And, uh, you know, when I first was writing about young adult breast cancer, I went to the medical literature and looked around to see, you know, what changes there have been over the past several decades and how we know the chemicals that we're exposed to are safe. And in fact, there's remarkably little literature on that. 
And so that's another possibility is that there's something in our environment that didn't used to be just a few decades ago, and that's predisposing to cancer. So that's pretty concerning. And in my opinion, not as well studied as it might be. Yeah, that's that's pretty frightening. And I want to make sure if I'm interpreting what you said correctly, it sounds like proportionately there is more metastatic disease now at first diagnosis in young women than, I, I want to make sure I say it right, like the, the amount of metastatic disease, the increase in that is larger than the increase in earlier stage breast cancer in young women. Am I understanding that correctly or no? The most dramatic shift in breast cancer incidence has been the increase in metastatic disease over the past 30 years. Now, fortunately, that's a minority of women. Uh, most women are not uh, diagnosed with, with late stage disease at diagnosis. However, young women in general are more likely to have disease that's somewhat advanced than older women are. So if you look at a population of women 40 years of age and under or under the age of 40, I should say, two-thirds of them will have disease at stage two or three or four. So they have at least some degree of spread to the local tissues uh, and possibly, you know, distant spread, whereas only about one-third of older women have advanced disease of that type. It's pretty dramatic. Yeah. that And that's very scary, too, because just in my experience at work, working for breastcancer.org, a lot of our education is focused on older women. And we, I mean, we, ha we definitely have education for younger women, but that's really the target audience for breast cancer prevention. You know, mammograms aren't recommended by most groups to start until 40. So if so many of these younger women are being diagnosed with, you know, stage two and up disease, that's really concerning. It is. And to your point, it's not a population that could benefit from screening because, you know, even though about 5% of breast cancer is diagnosed in women under the age of 40, that's not enough to make population screening a useful um, and cost-effective uh, intervention. And so people under the age of 40 will t continue to be an unscreened population unless, of course, they're at very high risk from a family history or known genetic susceptibility to breast cancer, right? Those people could get screened earlier. But, you know, we can't fix the problem by starting mammograms earlier, for example. Right. Oh, yeah, it's not not a simple solution. Now, the other thing that's concerning um, in your paper, it says that these younger women who are diagnosed also have worse survival compared to older women. Can you talk about, a little bit about that? Do we have any hints as to why that is? Well, if you look at all of the population under the age of 40 who's diagnosed versus all of the population over the age of 40, uh, you start with the fact that the women under the age of 40 are more likely to have stage two, three, or four, you know, somewhat advanced disease at the time of diagnosis. And so uh, survival is highly correlated to stage at the time of diagnosis. And people with metastatic disease, of course, have by far the worst survival of, of any of those stages. And so young women have sort of all of the bad markers when you look at them as a population. So they're more likely to have larger tumors than older women. They're more likely to have higher grade tumors. That's where the cells in the tumor are dividing very, very fast. They're more likely to have adverse biologic subtypes like triple negative uh, disease that requires chemotherapy and has worse survival than uh, some of the other subtypes, more likely to have vascular invasion than uh, older women are. And so they just have tumors that are bad actors biologically. No one knows exactly why. Hmm. Okay. Now, is breast cancer in younger women treated differently than breast cancer in older women as a rule. I mean, I know you've you've just told us that it's the breast cancer. The cancers are usually more aggressive, so obviously that would, I'm assuming, lead to more aggressive treatment. But but overall, if if a younger woman say some a younger woman say somebody who's 21 and is diagnosed with breast cancer comes to see you versus somebody who's 71, is the treatment plan automatically different? In most ways, not. So the main driver of uh, decisions about 
chemotherapy and management of breast cancer is the tumor itself, not the age of the woman. However, in the youngest women, the clinician might have more of a suspicion for distant disease, for example, and so they might be somewhat more likely to look for that than they would be in an older woman, um, and that would be appropriate. But then, you know, once once the tumor is classified, you know, and you know what stage it is and um, all of the biological characteristics, the, the treatment is not usually different uh, from that of older women. Young women with aggressive cancers, however, are uh, probably more likely to get ovarian suppression. You know, most uh, cancer is diagnosed in the postmenopausal period, and women, of course, are uh, still having menstrual cycles uh, as a rule under the age of 40. And so ovarian suppression uh, and whether that's needed is something uh, that is a uh, you know, particular thing to consider in in young women that are still having menstrual periods. So, all in all, um, the treatment's not likely to differ substantially just because a woman is young. But one needs to you know look carefully to make sure there's not spread of disease that is unrecognized and think about special factors because the woman's still cycling. Sure. Now. Would a younger woman, I guess I'm thinking especially of somebody who's, you know, say 15 to 20, would that person be referred to a pediatric pediatric oncologist versus a general oncologist? In my experience, often yes, but not always. So I work in the pediatric oncology setting, and I have been referred and worked up new diagnoses of women young women with breast masses. And usually the only ones that are referred to uh, pediatric oncologists are uh, teens, usually under the age of 18. Um, In my mind, adult centers that offer coordinated multidisciplinary care for, you know, and specialize in young women with breast cancer are well-equipped to uh, take care of breast cancers. The imaging is really an important factor. So uh, pediatric centers are not very good at breast imaging because they don't do very much of it, whereas adult centers are really, really good at it. And all of the protocols for treatment of breast cancer are, uh, you know, adult type of protocols. And so uh, I think that treatment in the pediatric setting is appropriate because the psychosocial support systems that we can offer in, in the pediatric setting are a bit different uh, than for adults. And uh, so we have child life specialists and, uh, you know, teen support groups and things like that in on the pediatric side that wouldn't be available probably to, to someone who is treated on the adult side. So when there's a teenager, teenagers ex- really very rarely get breast carcinomas. And um, when they do, I think they should be treated jointly by a pediatric oncologist with definite you know, frequent oversight by the medical oncologist to determine the treatment protocol. Sure. And I I think that's a good point that you bring up about the support groups, because I would have to imagine somebody who's 17 or 18 who's been diagnosed with breast cancer might have a hard time with a typical breast cancer support group. If most of the people are in their 50s or older, there's going to be a little, everybody's going to have such different priorities. So that, that makes a lot of good sense. Yeah, I was diagnosed with breast cancer myself in my 20s and treated at an adult center, actually, the the place I was doing my residency. And they offered me a support group and I asked, well, who's in it? Is there anyone my age whatsoever? And they said, no, you know, a lot of people are older. In fact, everyone's older and they like to show each other pictures of their grandchildren. And (laughs) I said, I'm I'm never going there. You know, Mm -hmm. it didn't seem helpful in the very least. Sure. So, yeah, I think that that for psychosocial support, um, getting age match peers, really, regardless of diagnosis, it can be helpful. You know, if you have enough people to talk who who uh, are of a similar age and also have the same kind of cancer, that's nice. But uh, to some degree, you know, just going through cancer at all at uh, at a given age, you know, as a teen or as a young adult sort of uh, brings people together in a way and, and gives them a lot to talk about. Absolutely. 
Um, so that sort of leads into my next question about some of the issues that are more challenging for younger women with breast cancer. Um, I believe you said this in your paper, and I've seen it other places too, that compared to older women, younger women always seem to report worse quality of life. So again, do we know what's going on there? Why Why does that happen? Do Is it because the cancer is more aggressive and these younger women are getting more aggressive treatments with more aggressive side effects? It's interesting and probably a question with a multifactorial answer. So it's probably for many reasons uh, that this is happening. And, and so in general, young adults with cancer and adolescents with cancer have a lot more complaints, I guess you could say, have, you know, they report a lot more problems than older people with cancer. They have more treatment-related nausea. They have more fatigue. You know, they have more problems doing their thing, going to school, going to work, which may actually relate to the fact that they're just doing so much and so mm-hmm. active, you know, normally at that age. And they report worse quality of life than older people do who have cancer. Again, those older people people may be less derailed by a cancer diagnosis than, you know, a college student who has to drop out for a year and then go back. And so there are many reasons uh, hypothesized as to why that is, but nobody knows. But one interesting feature I wanted to make sure to mention is that young women with breast cancer are even worse than the rest of the pool of young adults with cancer in terms of decreases in their quality of life during and after cancer treatment. So young women with breast cancer report among the worst uh, quality of life if you compare them to their peers with other types of cancer, certainly if you compare them to their peers without cancer, or even if you compare them with older to older women who also have breast cancer. And so again, nobody knows why that is, but as a survivor, um, you know, and as someone who's worked in this field for a while, I have a few ideas. First of all, you know, I think that quality of life can be decreased in young adults with cancer because the experience is really isolating. Their peers don't have any experience often with illness whatsoever, so they're not great at very being supportive. You know, they're sort of running around doing their own thing. And so it's just a terrible time of life to be sick and to get cancer when everybody's, you know, generally growing and moving forward and cancer can feel like, you know, a huge step back. People may have to move in with their parents again or, you know, be dependent in a way they never wanted to do. And so that's one thing. Another huge thing for young women, of course, is uh, sexuality and fertility. Mm. So, you know, body image changes are really hard. And breast cancer obviously is often associated with, you know, surgeries that may dramatically change the the look of the woman. You know, when, when I went through my um, surgery initially in my 20s, they told me, well, you know, we need to watch your chest wall to look for a chance of recurrence for a couple of years. And so I couldn't have a reconstruction for you know, quite some time after my diagnosis, which was really jarring, you know, to have have your body look so different. And so, you know, that that may be um, one of the reasons, you know, sexual health concerns, again, are, are not just present among breast cancer survivors, but among other young cancer survivors. So so that may be one thing. And, and concerns about being able to be a parent are very common among both men and women uh, who are uh, survivors of of young adult cancer and young women with breast cancer in particular and estrogen responsive breast cancer often are on tamoxifen and therefore, you know, told that they shouldn't conceive for often quite a long period of time after their diagnosis. So um, that's another thing that has the potential to be upsetting for people. Yeah, that I was, that's actually in the back of my mind, that's a question coming up because especially now with some of the hormonal therapy, I mean, it was five years and then now they're talking about 10 years. So if you're diagnosed when you're 25, that's 35 years. I mean, you're, it's up to age 35 where you, you can't get pregnant. And that's a long time. I mean, that's 
usually the prime time between, say, 20 and 40 when people think about having children. So I could see where that would be a huge, huge issue. Yeah, it's it's really problematic. And um, there are studies going on right now to test the safety of stopping tamoxifen for a period of time during that 10-year period or five-year period uh, in order for a breast cancer survivor to uh, you know, attempt to get pregnant and have a baby. Um, there's an interesting phenomenon called the healthy mother effect, which shows that people who get pregnant after a breast cancer diagnosis don't actually have worse survival. You know, there's a lot of hormonal fluctuations, uh, clinicians and, you know, others are often really concerned about what the impact will be. But actually, women who do manage to get pregnant often do okay which has led to the question of, okay, well, given that that's true, you know, would it be safe then to stop tamoxifen for, for a period of time if people's reproductive window was running out and they really strongly wanted to have a baby at that time? And this is after completing a couple of years, at least, of, of the tamoxifen. So those studies are still still ongoing. Okay, very interesting. And And I do kind of want to ask about fertility preservation, too, because from what I've read, and I know this isn't the case everywhere, but sometimes it kind of gets forgotten in the rush of a, of a diagnosis and we have to do everything we can to treat this cancer. And it's not until maybe say chemotherapy or something's going to start and you think, oh, wow, this is going to affect my fertility. What should I do? And then, you know, all those options need to be explored. And I think sometimes people don't feel there's enough time to to think it through and figure out exactly what they should do. What, um, what's been your experience with that and with your patients? Well, the prospects for uh, being able to preserve your fertility as a young woman with cancer are really very much better than they used to be, particularly if you have a couple of weeks after diagnosis and before the start of treatment to work with. And so Again, when I was diagnosed in my 20s, uh, one could not bank their own eggs and later defrost them to be fertilized by whatever sperm they chose. So if you didn't have a life partner with whom you could freeze down embryos and perhaps later use them if, if you became infertile, then you had no choice. You could get banked sperm and create an embryo. But you know, for a lot of, of younger women who haven't chosen a life partner, that's not really a very good option at all. And so, so now um, egg freezing is standard of care, just clinically available, not experimental. And it works really well, almost as well, or you know, perhaps even as well as freezing down embryos. And so it's a nice option. Uh, the downside is that insurance doesn't usually cover it. And so it, therefore, there are thousands of dollars of out-of-pocket expense to get the hormones and do the actual procedures and, and freeze down the eggs themselves. And uh, the uh, LiveStrong has a fertility preservation program that can help defray those costs somewhat, but there's always out-of-pocket costs. And then on the back end, if the woman becomes infertile and needs to use those banked eggs, you have to do it with in vitro fertilization, which also costs tens of thousands of dollars. So the cost is prohibitive for many people, but the option is there. And women with breast cancer often have a couple of weeks to work with after their diagnosis. It's not like leukemia is where, you know, they're diagnosed and immediately admitted to the hospital and, you know, treatment starts within a day or two. In breast cancer, there, you know, there's often more delays. And so, you know, fertility preservation is important. Now, the majority of the patients of a medical oncologist are elderly. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge is to get to an oncology team that recognizes, okay, here I have in front of me a young person who might want fertility preservation um, and, you know, have that addressed as one of the very first things that's talked about. And so, you know, young women, I think, benefit from at least a consultation early on with a specialty team that offers multidisciplinary care, you know, with a focus on young women to make sure they get urgent referrals for fertility preservation if they want to do that. 
And another thing is to make sure they get genetic testing very early on after their diagnosis, because that can inform women's decisions about mastectomy versus lumpectomy. And so it's it's super important to get those results back as quick as possible. And um, to do that, you need to send them out, you know, just very shortly after diagnosis. Sure, sure. And And while you were speaking, I was thinking, making those kinds of decisions. I mean, you know, you're in your 20s, you're diagnosed with breast cancer, you have to deal with that. You may be in school, you've got all these other things going on. And then all of a sudden, you have to decide like, oh, do I want to have a kid five or 10 years from now? I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. I don't have a partner. It just, it just seems like so much pressure to be put on top of somebody in addition to everything else that's going on, plus cancer. Yeah, it's mind blowing. And to try to, you know, do all the things that a young adult does and also deal with insurance and also deal with these different medical specialists is a lot. And, you, you know, people of any age who don't have a partner who is acting as a caretaker those people are at risk for adverse outcomes from their cancer, even in elderly people. And young adults are the population actually most likely to live alone um, of all age groups. And so in my mind, they're at some risk for, you know, problems being able to adhere to the recommended therapy and just problems being able to get everything done by themselves without some help. Sure. Sure. No, I absolutely believe that. Um, I do want to ask you about reconstruction options. Are they pretty much the same for younger women? Um, you know, uh, the the autologous, the the implant is is one preferable for a younger woman because of age. Or I guess I'm thinking it's got to be hard because a woman's shape could change, and so if you've you know got this this implant or this reconstruction done in when you're 20, is it still going to be look good when you're 60? Right. So it's a really complicated decision and there are many options more and more and everybody's choices about what to do are different. And so it's very important to, again, get to a surgical team that offers as many of the potential options as possible for reconstruction um, in order that the woman um, be able to choose. You know, some elderly women, and of course some young women too, like choose against reconstruction altogether and or don't have reconstruction right away, which leads to worse uh, cosmetic outcomes. And so again, it, it is important to have a surgeon who is, you know, dealing frequently uh, with young women and sometimes now, uh, tertiary centers offer flap reconstruction, um, where they take bel- uh, belly fat or fat from your, you know, thighs and rear end, and and kind of transplant a whole piece of that along with the veins and arteries that support it to kind of reconstruct a breast that actually, you know, looks and feels more like a breast. So that's an option that's sort of come down the pike in the past decade or so, and then, you know, you can get a, a silicon implant and uh, that's another option or one can get a lumpectomy and radiation therapy instead of a mastectomy and then there's the related question as to whether you'll have a unilateral mastectomy on the affected breast or some people will choose a bilateral mastectomy because women who are very young at diagnosis have a really high incidence of breast cancer in the other breast over the course of their lifetime, like up to a third of women will have breast cancer on the opposite side okay. um, from the initial diagnosis during, during the course of their lifetime. So if you like, I will tell you what my choices were regarding reconstruction. Would that be useful? Sure. Yeah. If you're willing to share, that would be great. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I think for me and for everyone, it was it was kind of a journey and took a lot of hard decision making. So when I was initially diagnosed, I was offered lumpectomy or mastectomy. Um, the data was known even back then. It was in the in the 90s. The risk of local recurrence is far higher in young women than in older women, local recurrence being the cancer coming back on uh, 
you know, in, in the breast where uh, it was first diagnosed. And so therefore, if you have a lumpectomy, if they take out just the, the cancer, the area of cancer itself and not the whole breast, then you need to have radiation therapy on that breast as well to make sure, um, you know, and give you the best chance of, of the cancer not coming back. And the radiation is given both for younger women and for older women as a standard if you don't have the whole breast taken off. And so for me, uh, I was, you know, a second year resident in internal medicine and pediatrics, and I was working, you know, 80 or more hours a week and super busy. And so the idea of going to radiation every day for six weeks and, you know, sitting there and waiting in line, and it just seemed terrible to me. Plus, I kind of wanted the cancer off of me right then and there. Mm-hmm. definitively. Sure. And so I chose um, to have a mastectomy. And, and again, they told me it was a high risk cancer and, and they needed to watch the chest wall for um, evidence of, uh, you know, recurrence for a couple of years. So I just had, you know, a prosthesis, like a silicon implant, literally like in my bra, which was, you know, cosmetically not terrible when dressed, but, you know, was a little suboptimal in the real scheme of things. And so then a couple of years later, when everything, you know, looked okay in terms of my health, the option I, options I was given was, do I want a saline implant or a silicon implant? Those were the two things available at that time. So I chose the silicon because it was supposed to feel more normal, less hard, less sort of, you know, um, like a like a water balloon inside your, <laughs> right. your body. So in the, the, and the, I don't so mean I to interrupt, but they didn't offer you like flap reconstruction with your own tissue. It was it was either silicone or saline implant. That's correct, because the flaps didn't exist back then. Oh, they didn't okay. have them in the nineties. Got it. it it's okay. a newer technology. Okay. And so so I chose the silicone implant because it seems the better of the two, and it was fine when dressed. Um, it was always you know I I didn't consider a bilateral mastectomy. And no one offered me one, interestingly, because I think there was a lot less focus at that time on young women in general. You know, all the literature at the time said, oh, breast cancer is rare in young women. But nobody ever actually added up the numbers to realize that breast cancer is the most common cancer of adolescents and young adult women. It's 30% of all cancer in AYA women. So, you know, if you compare it to cancer of the elderly, it's rare, but it's actually quite common among young adults and uh, as a type of cancer. Um, so I think a lot more attention is paid uh, these days to the, the special needs of young women. So, and currently a lot, uh, young women more than old women um, tend to choose uh, bilateral mastectomy uh, with reconstruction, particularly if they have a genetic predisposition to breast cancer. Uh, one of the BRCA genes or another predisposing gene, or if they're really young and, you know, again, just to prevent having to go through the whole thing again and be diagnosed with cancer in the other breast later. So anyway, um, I went ahead and got a, a silicon implant. Again, I think that the cosmetic um, appearance of an implant is better if they can use the skin of the the breast initially. And I had to have, I didn't have that because I had had a mastectomy and then they waited a couple of years. So I had to have a tissue expander and then I got the implant and I was almost like moderately happy with it. It was fine and much better than nothing, but it was sort of nothing to, you know. <laughs> I was going to say that better than nothing doesn't sound super great. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. Um, and I, you know, I went on, I'm, I feel so lucky to live and to have two kids and I, was able to breastfeed the two babies with, you know, the, my other breasts. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, I had the, the reconstructed breast and everyone ignored it, you know, pretty much I ignored it, <laughs> but like, it was just not interesting. It was slightly colder than the rest of my, you know, body. And like the babies just ignored it too. And, and, you know, went for the one with the milk. And so it was, you know, I think that that was sort of emblematic of, how it worked was just sort of there. And um, anyway, the other thing that they told me when I had the silicon implant was that it would only last for 10 years and really I should get it replaced, you know, kind of prophylactically because the silicon would wear it down over time. And so I did not do that because who would go in with, you know, a breast that seemed fine and volunteer to have more surgery? You know, I was then in my 30s and busy and I had young kids and I didn't. Um, 
and it seemed to be working fine. So then when my youngest kid was seven, um, I was diagnosed, in fact, by routine mammogram with, um, with a cancer in the other breast because there's a high chance of it. And so I was getting my mammograms. Um, fortunately, it was a lower grade, you know, kind of more old lady type cancer that was not as aggressive as the first one. So it was a full on second cancer, but that does happen. And uh, for myself, I was really glad to have had the chance to breastfeed my kids. I was glad to have the other breasts, but people all make their own choices. And a lot of young women, again, choose bilateral reconstruction up front and, and any choice is fine. Um, so anyway, at that point, I chose to have the DIEP flap reconstruction because that technology was available and, and um, a possibility at that time. So they went out and, and took out the um, existing silicon, you know, prosthesis and silicon uh, breast, and then they, they just did the DIEP flap and reconstructed both breasts. And they actually had a lot of trouble with the silicon implant because of the fact that it had um, kind of leaked and it was, you know, all, it was kind of a mess in there, even though it seemed fine to me. And so they really don't last forever, which is a bit problematic when you're hoping to live for many decades after your diagnosis as, as young people are. Right. And you don't want to be scheduling surgery every 10 years. No. And so I, I think that's something for, for young women to think about and to discuss with their surgeons, because again, the technology of making the prostheses is probably improving over time as well. So people should check into what the current, you know, projected life of their implant is, because that's much more important for a young woman who will, you know, who will live for hopefully 50 years or more after her diagnosis compared to an, an older woman who, you know, may may live a much shorter time because she's older. Sure, sure. Thank you for sharing that. That that was very helpful. Now, kind of moving into, I guess, prevention as it can be, because obviously, as you said, younger women can't get screening, they can't get mammograms. But what are the best things that <clears throat> these younger women can do to keep their breast, their risk of breast cancer as low as it can be? Are there, are there? I mean, I know there are modifiable lifestyle factors, you know, like alcohol and smoking, but are, you know, what would be your advice as far as like the three biggest things? So I think that all we have under our control are modifiable uh, lifestyle risk factors and, and also our exposure to environmental toxins. And so I think both bear significant consideration, um, not just among women, but among all young people, you know, um, in Western countries, you know, the sperm count of men has decreased by like a third in the past like 10 or 20 years, you know, something like some really strange things are happening. And again, far too quick to be a, a genetic change of some sort. So I think that, um, you know, thinking hard about what environmental chemicals are around us, you know, is it plastic bottles, like, you know, plastic, um, like disposable water bottles are something that is sort of new since the 80s. And in fact, you know, this distant metastatic breast cancer has gone up since then. So, you know, I've heard it proposed, well, maybe it's that. And, you know, is it plastics? Well, we don't know. And to be honest, no one is out there studying it for us. You know, I mean, some environmental organizations are, but it's not like the government, you know, is is strongly you know, funding these programs of research to, um, you know, see if big business should be encouraged not to do these things because they might protect public health. And maybe that's happening somewhere, but I can't see it by review of the literature related to young adult breast cancer. Okay, so I think that that um, being careful about environmental exposure and thinking about that for oneself and one's family is important. And then, you, you know, lifestyle has long been known to be important for breast cancer. So not smoking reduces risk for breast cancer, both in young and older women. So, you know, one shouldn't smoke. Exercise, uh, there are some sort of small to medium-sized studies that suggest that regular vigorous exercise in um, adolescence and young adulthood is protective against breast cancer. And so, you know, that's important um, to, to do. And particularly 
I am interested in diet. So after my second breast cancer diagnosis, I thought, you know, something has got to change in my life. And what is it that I can do from where I stand, you know, to, to make my health the best that it can be. And so after reviewing the literature, I I decided to adopt a plant-based diet um, because people on a plant-based diet tend to have, you know, lower cancer incidence in the beginning, better survival from different kinds of cancers. And in places where people mostly eat plant-based diets, long story short, cancer risks tend to be lower. Um, And uh, in the breast cancer literature, there are small studies in which uh, investigators have looked at different elements of the diet to see what role they play in breast cancer. And they all point back to the importance of a plant-based diet. So for example, red meat, uh, higher red meat intake has recently been found to be a risk factor for breast cancer. And in another study, uh, they found that if people would substitute one serving of meat a day for instead a serving of beans, that that would decrease the incidence of breast cancer or their chance of getting breast cancer by about 19%, so almost 20%. So just one serving of meat a day, substituting for one serving of beans a day. And is that more beans or is that less red meat? They don't know. But again, beans are part of a plant-based diet. And then there have been some other studies that look at specific elements of the diet. So things that decrease your risk for breast cancer include eating more cruciferous vegetables, eating more citrus fruits, more tomatoes, more mushrooms, and small studies show these things, but again, those are plants. And so um, I think that that uh, people are pretty reluctant to hear that news. There was a study that just came out a week or two ago about how every hot dog that you eat decreases your lifespan by about 36 minutes, whereas every serving of nuts increases it by 15 minutes. And I actually was delighted to see that anyone was doing large-scale studies of, you know, the elements of our diet and their impact on our health. Because again, big pharma does not want to fund those. They don't care. And so it's really hard to get funding and it takes a long time to observe people prospectively and figure out what their cancer risk will be and, you know, what their health will be like and, and even, you know, do they live or do they die over a period of years. And so I was actually really pleased to see that someone had done that. And, and so, you know, I could, you know, tell my kids, hey, look, you know, this serving of nuts, I'm encouraging you to eat right now, like, that's good for you. Uh, you know, if you look at the population as a whole. But interestingly, like, just in the past few days, I read this scathing critique of that article in, you know, a prominent medical website, where somebody said, well, can you even believe this ridiculous information? You know, of course, 36 minutes doesn't mean anything to the individual. Well, no, it doesn't. But it really does mean that the things you eat, you know, have a major impact on health, long story short. And I don't know if this person just likes their hot dogs or, you know, (laughs) what it was. But, you know, but I think people are just resistant to hearing that they have to change their dietary patterns. And as an oncologist, you know, I am surprised that we rarely suggest that people do because it's seen as like, well, we couldn't ask them to, you know, not eat their, you know, insert whatever they like to eat there because like, oh my gosh, they're sick and it's a comfort food. Well, all right. But, you know, maybe what they're eating has a major impact on, you know, their chance of being a survivor versus not. And, and, you know, there's, uh, there's literature that I've seen in, uh, in cancer journals uh, just over the past year that uh, the quality of the diet has an impact on the people's likelihood of getting mouth sores from their cancer chemotherapy and also of getting fevers and getting sick during the time when their immune system is the lowest after cancer therapy. And so I think diet does have a major impact on health. And it's one thing that that people can choose to do that will maximize their health. Um, so, you know, look at things that go into your body, your food, alcohol, smoking, you know, there, there is no amount of alcohol that is thought to be safe anymore 
um, the the uh, guidelines are definitely changing, and particularly for breast cancer, all alcohol is bad. There's no amount that's just fine. And so, um, you know, the best thing would be to be a non-drinker, non-smoker with a plant-based diet who exercises a lot. And people's willingness to do all of those things may vary. And um, and that's okay. That's a choice. But, but I think that as uh, healthcare providers, we should, you know, take a strong look at what we recommend to people, because I do think the data are emerging that those things are important. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's all very helpful and good to know. Uh, finally, one last question. As a survivor yourself of young adult breast cancer, what advice would you offer to another young woman who was recently diagnosed? I mean, are there a couple things that you wish somebody had told you in the few days after you were diagnosed? Yeah, the first thing I think is that they should um, they should consider referral to a tertiary care center that treats young adults with breast cancer specifically in a multidisciplinary care setting. And so they don't necessarily have to get all their treatment there, but it's important to go there quickly because at a big center, they can tell you whether there's a clinical trial open. Um, that might be relevant. And particularly for young women or anyone really with a high risk cancer, clinical trials offer the possibility of better treatment for this cancer than we've ever had before, if you're interested in a clinical trial. And so, but you can't, you know, start some other type of therapy and as easily switch to a clinical trial later on. So it's important to know what's available to you as early as you can. Also, fertility preservation is something that needs to be teed up almost immediately, and centers that treat young adults are uh, better prepared to do that often than some community centers are. And then the final thing is genetic testing, uh, which needs to be sent off really early so that it can help the young woman and her, you know, and her team to um, to help her make decisions about what what sort of surgery she's going to have. So you know, consideration of, of clinical trials, fertility preservation, genetic testing. Again, if that is all seeming to be done at her local place, fine. But otherwise, uh, and perhaps anyway, she should just ask for a consultation with whatever is the nearest um, medical center that, that offers specific services for young women with breast cancer. And, you know, just a, an anecdote, I have a friend who was diagnosed with breast cancer um, back when I was living in Texas, um, you know, about 15 years ago. And she had the biopsy, was diagnosed with, you know, cancer at this, um, you know, community medical center right in the middle of Houston. So it wasn't a rural area or anything. And she was telling me the the plan. And she said, well, you know, the, the surgeon said I should probably begin chemo within a couple of months. And so I've, you know, have a referral to a medical oncologist, but I'm supposed to go like, you know, and name some date like six weeks in the future. And there really is data um, that has emerged between then and now that uh, starting to treat the cancer uh, as quickly as possible after diagnosis, ideally, you know, within the first couple of weeks, improves survival. And and so waiting a couple of months uh, between surgery and, and the start of any chemotherapy in a young woman is totally unacceptable. And this, uh, you know, my friend was a professional, but not, you know, a breast specialist. And she had absolutely no idea that that was a problem. And so I, you know, suggested that she, again, go to a big center and she got, got in and, and got things going much quicker. Um, so young women should know that time is of the essence for them. And if somebody, you know, gives them a time frame that seems, you know, not okay to them, they should ask around to see what medical resources are around. And if, if somebody could uh, do things quicker and, um, and they should make sure to, um, again, to look for possible clinical trials um, and, and seek genetic testing and for fertility preservation right away if they want it. And the other thing I would say for, for young adults is that there are lots of support services that are available that never used to be. And that is really nice. And it's, you know, one of the things I've been 
delighted to um, to see during my oncology career is just to see those those support services grow up because um, you know when I was diagnosed in my 20s there it was really hard to find a person my age to talk to and now there are lots and so um, there are several that offer online uh, support like elephants and tea uh, there's one called the cactus cancer there's another one called stupid cancer um, all of those offer online uh, support there's there is one called uh, immerman angels i-m-e-r-m-a-n in which both cancer patients or caregivers of any age, not just young adults, but old or young, um, you can uh, contact them and they will match you with somebody who has gone through the same thing. So, you know, being the caretaker of a cancer patient, you know, of a certain type at a certain age range, or, you know, being a young adult breast cancer patient, they, they have a whole bunch of volunteers who would be willing to, you know, talk or, FaceTime or whatever, text, and uh, just sort of provide support. Yeah, like, yeah, I've been there and been through it too. So lots of, uh, lots of great ways to um, find peer support. And as a young adult, you know, I, I had to sort of do my own searching to find um, some young women with breast cancer that I could talk to. But for me, it made an enormous difference just in kind of normalizing the experience, realizing I wasn't alone and that it was happening to other people too, and that they were dealing with it and, you know, moving forward with their lives as well. And, and so I think it's, um, it's really important to, you know, to take the time and make the effort, you know, not necessarily right at the time of diagnosis, but whenever feels right and just sort of, um, you know, process your emotions and, and um, talking to some people who have been through it can be helpful for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much. Your insights and your information have been so helpful. I really appreciate your time. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.